This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is the last people in Australia, apparently, to have never used Afterpay. That's right, we are pretty much on our Pat Malone, if you believe the news and stories out there. We will talk about Afterpay, but first, with me, I'm Scott Phillips, with me is Anir Ban Mahanti. G'day, Doc, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, and this Happy is, New Year to our listeners. This is the first time we've been together in the studio in 2019. We have had some podcasts going through the whole Christmas and New Year break. Uh, you've been away, I understand. I have been away. How was the break? It was great. Awesome. Visiting different places. Very nice, very nice. Uh, any investing takeaways? Completely off script. Um, some, you know, like uh, a couple of different things. Uh, at least one, one takeaway maybe about Uber. Oh, okay. Is that Uber, Uber is very popular in places like India. Would you say it's Uber popular? Uber. Uber popular, super. Uh, Uber, is, Uber is Uber popular, let's say. <laughs> in, in India, for example. Okay. But, but, you know, one of the things I, I discovered is that um, so Ola, which is the Uber competitor, yeah. is, is also very popular. So everybody has both Ola and uh, Uber. But there's a lot of rising discontent. I asked every driver, because we used Uber a lot. Right. And I asked each one of them, you know, how's it working out? And they said, you know, the initial days were really great. The fares were really high. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we you know, we all went out and took, took loans, car loans, and bought oh. these cars. Um, and, you know, initially it was working out awesomely well. And now we are just struggling to make our payments and things like that. And the, as soon as we make our payments, we are off Uber. Man, okay. <laughs> so that's my takeaway. That kind of says a little bit like what's happened in Australia, right? The high, it high, is, very, high, high fares to get drivers in, all of a sudden the fares drop. and Yeah, and then you squeeze them. Fascinating. Yeah. The gig economy is a topic we should probably discuss at a later date, but we're not going to do that now. And I apologize for going off script. Today, instead, we are going to talk about a bit of macro, a bit of, uh, bit of what's going on in the broader economic world, including interest rates and unemployment. We will talk about Afterpay, as I mentioned. It's in the news again this week. It is the catnip uh, for headline writers around the country. Mm. Afterpay again in the news. And there is some validity to why it was in the news. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about new digital banks that are on the march. So, you know what next for some of the big guys? And because we love to, we're going to dip into the Motley Fool mailbag. We had a heap of questions over the last few weeks, which we love desperately. Um, so, Fools, thank you for taking the time, sending in your questions, comments, and feedback. We love them. We want more, as always. Um, I'll put in a quick plug now. If you do want to get in contact, info at fool.com.au. That's I-N-F-O, info at fool.com.au or hit us up on Twitter, which is probably the best place because we can interact with you. Your fellow members can see what's going on at the Motley Fool AU. Surprise, surprise. I'm at TMF Scott P and Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. You can get any or all of us and we'll have a chat on Twitter. Of course. Now, mate, let's go to the big macro and some really, really good, in, in the face of all the doom and gloom of, mm. of past months, the, the stock market's been in a bit of a funk. It hasn't been a great time to be an investor. Lots of bad news on the horizon. This one was pretty good. Unemployment in Australia now down to 5.0%. Mm-hmm. Unemployment in New South Wales, the lowest is since at least 1978. Mm-hmm. So I do my math quickly. That's 41 odd years. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I mean, it's, it's it's really great, but you know, if you want to be a pessimist, you can say, "Hey, how you know this is the best as it gets, and now it's going to get worse." Oh, jeez! Uh, I'm just giving you come on, giving you a different. You're take. miserable if the unemployment's high. You're miserable <laughs> if it's low. Can we not have some positivity well, somewhere around uh, here? Yeah, I, I, th- I think the the uh, this is the surprising thing, right? I mean, you know, some of the. 
There's talk that the retail numbers are not looking good. There's talk that there's the the foot traffic in malls are down. Um, you know, so in the face of that, there have been some downgrades from companies. In the face of all that, this is a very positive news, right? I mean, there's, there's maybe you know the contradiction in in themes. You know, the stock market is not happy. Some companies are not you know making their ends meet, but mm-hmm. employment numbers are rising. I'll point out one thing though: um, the full-time employment was down. And uh, um, still f- finding things to complain about. And uh, part time employment was up. Um, so, you know, in, in aggregate, it was up. But I mean, you know, we should keep that in mind. The other thing I was thinking, that, you know, well, but it's again seasonally adjusted, but, you know, December generally has, you know, a lot of casual workers coming in to, mm. uh, to provide. Uh, um, you know, help with uh, let's say the tills at uh, at shops, and mm-hmm. you know, so there's a there's a there's extra activity that happens at that time. But you know, nonetheless, again, as I've always said, you know, there are headwinds, but this is this is a positive among the headwinds. So yeah, I'll, I'll it's a it's a it's a tick in my box. Damned yeah. with faint praise, I think we call this one. I'm going to be unabashedly optimistic, mate, because I like to be, and I think it's the right thing. Um, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty happy to see the unemployment numbers going the right way. The question, of course, the bigger question for me is really the, the and we talked about this a little bit off air, the challenge of where, what's happening with wages. You know, in a, in a normal world, in, in kind of, you know, in the past, in economic orthodoxy, what's supposed to happen is unemployment decreases. As mm-hmm. employment goes up, wages are supposed to go up as well because there are fewer workers. Companies have to pay more to get people to come and work for them. That's kind of been supposed to have happened for the last couple of years. Um but some, hasn't. Of, some of our wonkier listeners will have heard the term Nairu before, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Mm-hmm. One of my favourites, and one of the pollies was caught on that on a current affair on one of those shows once. Um, the idea is basically at some point, there's supposed to be a level of employment or unemployment before which there is no inflation, after which wage inflation starts to creep in. We just haven't seen that yet. I think that's no. the that's the biggest A question. And B, I think to some degree, it's the thing that's holding back the economy more than most. If we'd have seen some wage inflation over the last couple of years, we've probably seen an increase in spending and a, a bit more solidity in the in the kind of the basic physical economy mm-hmm. that really hasn't come through because most people don't have any more money in their pockets to spend despite the fact that unemployment's falling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would hypothesize that, you know, if, if, if the employment is coming from casual work and part-time employment, maybe that's, that's part of the reason why, you know, it's not going up is, you know, it, it's, it's um, you know, maybe there are plenty of people who want casual work, mm-hmm. you know, who can, are looking for casual work and getting them, you know, and, and businesses are able to get them when they want. Yeah, and then yeah. again, release them when they don't want. So Yeah, it's probably true. Part-time work. I mean, part-time work is, is permanent. So to some degree, that's partly true. I think the other thing for me is that there's one of my favorite economists who I do appear on uh, Your Money with, the old Sky business, uh, Stephen Roberts from Alexander Funds Management. He's also mentioned that while individual per hour wages haven't increased, mm-hmm. the actual household income has increased by about 6% year on year simply because there are more people in the workforce. And so while you're not getting more money, I'm not getting more money. Mm-hmm. If more members of our family are working, the household income actually goes up, mm-hmm. even if the per person per hour wage doesn't increase. And again, that's not to say it's okay, but that, that's giving some context to why there's a bit of positivity in the economy. And hopefully, for all of our sakes, uh, it's enough to keep the economy rolling forward. So if the inflation is, is minimal and household income actually goes up 6%, that's actually a net positive, right? Quite a bit of a net positive. You know what? So I'm going I'm to rant a little. We haven't had a high horse for a while, and I will have one at the end of this podcast if I remember and we don't run out of time. Uh, I, to your point about that, I think that's one of the big 
uh, one of my big bugbears is that sense of people would rather, if you ask most people, sorry, that, no one would, would admit it, right? But but psychologically, most of us would rather a 5% pay increase mm-hmm. in a 6% inflation environment when we're actually going backwards. Yeah. Rather get a 2% wage increase with a 1% inflation rate. Yeah. It just We like bigger numbers. It feels like we're getting mm. more money. Even though our money's buying less, in the first in, first case, mm. our purchasing power is decreasing. Mm. In the second case, even though we're getting less in terms of extra dollars, actual dollars, our purchasing power is increasing. Mm-hmm. Most of us feel better about a larger increase, even in a higher inflation environment. I'm pretty sure economic confidence would be higher if we had higher inflation and higher wage, higher wage but, mm. but less high um, than the current situation because we're, mm. we're all look, used to looking at that one number in the bank account saying, is it going up or not, yep. rather than genuinely, mm. do I have more money to spend? I think mm. that's, the, that's the big one. We need fake inflation. <laughs> Get Donald, get Donald Trump onto it. Yeah. Well, fake inflation. I like it. Go with fake news. No, I don't talk politics. I have no opinion about politics. <laughs> I'm just I'm just referring to the fake news yeah. one. I'm not opinionated. Oh, mate, I am. Just stick around. <laughs> hey, fo- follow me on Twitter if you want some opinions. I'm, I'm good at that. I, I'm not, I, I try not to be particularly mm. political, uh, partisan, I'll say. Mm. I don't mind being a little bit political. Mm. I try not to be partisan. I try, and, uh, I try and swing barbs both ways when they're deserved. And I've certainly had my go at both the left and the right of politics recently. But we'll leave that one alone. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, speaking of the economy, and this is one I know has been near and dear to your heart, basically because you're a uh, a bear and you hate property. Um, we saw this I don't, I don't hate anything. <laughs> so that way I set that up and just kept oh, talking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this week, the NAB was the last of the big four mm. banks after promising not to... Mm. NAB has come out and increased the variable interest rates pretty much across the board. Every NAB customer is going to be paying more, mm. almost every customer with a variable loan, as a result of this announcement. Now, we've talked a little bit in the past about the reasons why. Mm. Just recap those a little bit mm. and what you're thinking about after the NAB kind of rate, uh, rise goes through. So, so when NAB actually made that statement that they're going to keep it on hold and not mm. increase it, mm. I thought it was very bold. Uh, for, for a CEO to do that, it's actually very bold. And the reasons we have talked about this before, mm. and for those people, uh, for those who have listened to us before, this is like going to be sound like a repeat, but for those who haven't, this is you know <laughs> a refresher. The, the I think the magic here is that, let's say we um, get 50% or 60% of our funds that you know borrowers get, they come from, uh, let's say, our depositors or local economy, mm. right? Mm. And then let's say 40% of the funds come from overseas, what they call the wholesale markets, which is basically going overseas and saying, can we borrow money from you? Right. So they take, right. they take three-fifths of their money from Australian depositors yeah. and two-fifths, 40% by going overseas and saying, hey, can we borrow some money from, from overseas because there's not enough deposit cash here yeah. to fund all loans Australians want to take out. Exactly. Right. So now when that happens, then you have to pay the overseas folks interest, right? And let's let's assume that you're going to the US, which is one of the world's largest money markets, then uh, you're going to be, you know, the amount of money interest you're going to be paying is going to be decided by, to, to at least a large extent, by the interest rates prevailing in that economy or, in this case, the US Fed, right? So US Federal Reserve, which is essentially the RBA equivalent. Mm-hmm. The the US Fed, which is the RBA equivalent, has been increasing rates, which means the cost of borrowing money from overseas is going up. And while RBA here has not, which basically means the cost of borrowing money locally, which is taking the depositors' money, mm-hmm. has not mm-hmm. gone up. Right. But when you put the two together, it basically means that the cost of money borrowing money has gone up. Right. Of course, for 40% of it, but it still has gone up. So half your costs remain stable. The other yeah. half of your costs increase. Increase. If you don't pass on higher... So think of this as, as a manufacturing company, right? Yeah. If you've got cost of goods, uh, let's say you make a, a product that has two components, two two pieces, two ingredients. The first ingredient costs the same. The second ingredient costs more. Yeah. Your cost of goods goes up. Either you've got to increase prices 
Well, you've got to have smaller margins and make less money. Exactly. And, and, and you know, as a bank CEO, you've got to be really, really bold because your shareholders <laughs> are going to come with, you know, pitchforks, knives uh-huh. and, you know, chainsaws and whatnot. Uh, if, if, you know, you're making less money than last year, right? I mean, those NAB <laughs> shareholders want their dividends. They want their dividends to go up. And, and I, I mean, as a shareholder, that's what we want, right? right. I mean, so there's a fine balance here yeah. uh, to strike. I mean, I thought NAB was bold. And I, I think all banks have no choice but to do this. Yeah. And uh, this is, you know, if we want our banking system to, you know, work the the way it works and, you know, it works well, mm. this has to happen. So, uh, so I think it's not unexpected. Uh, I would say that, you know, if you didn't pay extra interest uh, for the last one year or whatever, you know, six months that uh, NAB gave mm. you, you know, you got a benefit. Um, so this, you know, again, this headwind is going to be there and it's going to be, I think, you know, I think, you know, we are in a rising interest rate environment. So I think that's that's the headwind. And I expect that to be there. You know, that's largely my take on properties that, you know, cost of borrowing is going up. And if your debt loads are very high, then, you know, cost of servicing that goes up. Mm. And that therefore has other impacts, which is, you know, if you're, if you're paying more to service your loan, then you have less money left in your pocket, which therefore means that you have less money to spend, which therefore means there's less money to go around and, you know, Mm. And, and so on. So it's, it's one of the headwinds. But again, employment numbers going up and, um, you know, uh, on average household income going up, which is good. We hope that uh, household income keeps going up enough to, uh, to offset the rising costs because, as you say, uh, that combined with the potential removal of negative gearing, a whole lot of concerns around what happens to confidence. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm an optimist, but I have to say there are... There are always very credible reasons why things could go badly. Yeah. Um, there's, 2019 is a is a year where a couple of them seem pretty credible, and, and more importantly, if they happen at the same time and, and compound each other, yeah. that's kind of when you start to worry a little bit about. I don't particularly care about housing prices either way. I'm not an investor. I own my own home, but yeah. I'm not selling anytime in the next hopefully 15, 20 years. So it doesn't matter. I don't care at all. Um, but what I do care about is that if the wealth effect in, increases the likelihood of a recession or some sort of economic downturn. Yeah. Um, that would be a pretty ugly thing to have happen. So absolutely, yeah. So yeah, hopefully it's, it's, the poly again we won't be political, but hopefully the politicians. Are yeah, listening. it's a lot of things actually coming together sort of at the wrong time. Maybe is is mm. the thing. You know, again, there are benefits to house pricing going down, house house prices going down, which mm. is you know makes more affordable for the people who are actually out of the market, right? So, but you know, again, uh, I don't want to get into political de- debate about this. You know, but mm. but. Yeah, I, I think there are some headwinds and we got to watch for that. But, you know, there are good news and bad news. And that's what, you know, makes life. There's always, you know, we all want all good news all the time. But, you know. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. From NAB to Afterpay. Do you like how I did that? Kind of financing, spending, economics. It's almost kind of the same thing. Did I did I get away with it? Not really. Okay, All right. yeah. I tried, and that's yeah. that's really important. Uh, uh, that counts. We, we get we get participation marks. We get effort marks yeah, here effort here marks, at the yeah. Motley for Money podcast. So it's commendable. Uh, <laughs> well done. <laughs> you might. So that's all I need. A bit, a bit of praise goes a long way, Dom. Um, I was in the news this week, and it's one of those kind of perennial headline grabbers for mm. a whole lot of different reasons. Um, this week it was about whether or not Afterpay was using some data from the electoral roll that. Depending on the allegation, depending mm. on the reading of the legislation, mm. it shouldn't have been using, at least not for that particular mm. purpose. The electoral roll does allow, or Australian Electoral Commission, I should say, does allow access to the electoral roll for particular purposes, mm-hmm. but not for <laughs> just any purpose. And mm-hmm. there was some concern that maybe Afterpay and its ilk, and there's many others mm. um, caught up in this kind of potential concern, are using the data for purposes they weren't supposed to be using it for. Mm. Uh, so that was in the news. Another kind of... Uh, you know, a one more bear strike against Afterpay if you're so inclined. Mm. 
On the flip side, this is a business that's still growing like a weed. Mm -hmm. It has made some uh, decent but still very, very small strides, relatively speaking, to the US. Mm -hmm. Um, Look, I love love the Afterpay story from a purely – as a business person, as someone who loves business and likes to see some Australian companies kind of, you know, take on the world and win. Afterpay as a business literally created a brand new way of paying. Mm -hmm. It convinced – I don't know if it's the majority of merchants, but an absolute truckload of merchants to accept this new way of paying. Um, Australian consumers have adopted it at a, at a massive rate of knots. This is a an unbridled success story of an Australian company who have innovated really cleverly. This isn't this isn't necessarily new software being written. It isn't necessarily new uh, ways of working necessarily. But mm-hmm. just if you can take on Amex, Visa, Mastercard, uh, you know whatever else, pick your debit cards, um, Google Pay, Apple Pay, you know a million other options. To, to have absolutely blown a hole in that and found your own space is pretty bloody impressive. The concern with Afterpay, of course, is A, does the business survive in the same form if it's regulated differently? And B, is it worth the money that's being charged for its share? So although we look, we can we can leave the electoral roll question aside, I think it's probably not a, not a big deal in the overall story. Maybe they get told to stop using it. Maybe it's okay. Maybe they get fined a small amount of money. It's kind of immaterial. Um, but the Afterpay story does... But people love it. People love hearing about it, talking about it. Um, it's the one company on on Twitter. If I'm ever if I'm ever game enough to say something negative, I get jumped on by by half a dozen Afterpay um, fans who who accuse me of talking it down. Uh, so just just kind of give me your thoughts on Afterpay as a business, where it's at, kind of how you're seeing the company, and then to some degree how you're seeing the shares. I want to take a first uh, cut at your segue uh, because, <laughs> because I'm going to disagree with two things. Oh, no. um, uh, number one, I think this. Uh, so the story, you know, uh, there's so many stories on Afterpay, and, and you know, it's, it's a clickbait. So you know, I read half of it, but I, what I found interesting about this clickbait was about data privacy, mm. and I think that's something that I have seen a lot spoken about lately. Especially so you have segues. You've taken this on a lovely tangent, but keep uh, going. No. So, 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 so da- data broking is something that's receiving a lot of attention. And mm-hmm. I think Europe was the first one to come up with GDPR, which basically tries to protect uh, you know, users' data and how the user's data is being used. So GDPR was the general something, uh, privacy something? Yeah, it's, it's a privacy regulation, right, which right. basically, I forgot the full name, it's a crappy name. doesn't matter, yeah. 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 Uh, but it's a privacy regulation, which is, which is basically trying to you know, give back the right of the data to the users right, at right, a very right. high level yeah so i i think so i think i found that as an interesting take that you know that that you know this is a popular culture thing right i mean you know once people talk about stuff you know it comes into public culture then politicians start talking about it, then there's regulation and and so on so i think that that angle was interesting the other thing i would say is i don't think afterface actually in the same space competing with visa mastercard apple pay google pay or whatever else is there because i think None of those other guys are actually in the space of, mm. you know, buy now, pay later, right? They're mm. not in that space. They're basically just facilitating contactless payment mm. or, you know, or they're basically facilitating the move to from cash to uh, electronic ways of uh, of paying. This mm. is really, mm-hmm. I think the innovation here was basically, basically, you know, bringing consumption forward as much as you can, a, a big, a bringing consumption of small goods forward uh, by some amount of time. I think that's the innovation here. And um, so it's basically another form of debt, right? You know, you can you can call it even pay, you know, payday lending type of approach, right? Uh, so it has been this sort of thing has existed in in one form or the other. They, what they did, I think, is they appealed to certain demographic and mm. did it really well, you know, using the smartphone and you know, and and then of course building mm-hmm. the the network of the retailers. I think that's a real big checkbox. So I, I will I will take a slight. Disagreement, though, I'll agree a little bit. To, to my mind, the competition piece is it's a different way to pay, and they've they've wriggled their way into a payment 
system, payment oligopoly, call it what you will, where yes, that's right happening now, but to some extent, those consumers, if they stay with this product into their 20s and 30s or whatever, you know, most people have an afterpay account or seem to have an afterpay yeah. account these days. The, the alternatives were cash, credit card or debit card. Now it's cash, credit card, debit card or afterpay. And to some degree, every dollar being spent, there's a portion of that that would have been spent using another payment method that's now being used on afterpay, what I would argue. I don't, think, I don't think it's purely incremental almost by definition. Sure, sure. But uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, it's incremental in the sense that, you know, maybe these people would not have spent this money and they're actually spending this money because yeah. they have got this form yeah. of loan that they can get, right? Yeah, so that's, yeah. so it's created, uh, that's what I'm saying, it's created a new demand yeah. that probably did not exist. Um, you're right to say that, you know, if the, if, if the people who are using it today continue using it in this form mm. in the future, then mm. it is it, it is an, in, you know, impingement on the territory of the visas and the MasterCards, mm. yeah. right? I look at the other payment technologies as different because they're just enabling the same thing to be paid in different ways, right? Yep. So if you're looking at Google Pay, yep. then it's different. You know, it's basically allowing your MasterCard to be used using Google, mm-hmm. right? So um, what I feel here is that there's, you know, a couple of things. The the early story from the US is is looking promising. So mm-hmm. I think that there's a, there's a lot of promise there. Uh, the question which is not clear is, is this going to get regulated like any other debt instrument would, you know? And, and I think that's the risk. And... Um, the other thing that I have seen is that Afterpay makes a pretty decent chunk of its revenue from late fees, right? Yeah, so they do twenty five percent last count. Of so, so that's pretty significant, right? I mean, you know, does what does that tell us? Is that people just forgetting about it, or is that people who are um, not able to pay and therefore paying these late mm-hmm. fees, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, so I, I feel that regulation might happen; they might get regulated, and, and I don't know what the impact of that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I think I find it fast. It's a fascinating thing. Mm. I don't use it personally, um, but yeah, again, it's it's fascinating. And you know, I'm a, I'm I'm someone who's a, you know I was skeptical of it. Mm-hmm. Me too. I, and I am less skeptical now now that they've been able to you know find their way into the U.S. and they're looking to find their way. They bought someone in in the bought a small company in in UK looking to roll out in the UK, and. Um, you know, it, it could be one of those things where, you know, you roll out enough that, you know, actually leg- legislating it in a way uh, affects consumer mood so much that no one wants to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so unless there's a bad outcome uh, uh, from all of this, then, mm-hmm. you know, again. So, yeah, I'm a I'm little less bearish right now. Let's say I'm not bullish, but I'm less, <laughs> less bearish on after. But that's my take. Fair enough to... So I'm going to ask you to go a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Not bearish, not bullish, kind of stuff. Current share price, buy, sell, or hold. Uh, so I mean, again, I mean, the main in the long term, how is it going to make money? It's making a cut of mm-hmm. the. You know, it's a pretty hefty cut that they're making of the retailers, right? Yep. But they're paying he- pretty hefty interest, right? So the question really is on the money that they're borrowing to give to people to, and then you know, or not give to people, but to give to the retailer. Yep. So the question really is: This is basically like this is in, in this is basically a banking operation, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? This is so you know what is this is basically the equivalent of the net interest margin that they're basically making. It's not it's not a transaction based thing where you know more people are spending more and therefore. Uh, you know, you you're making a cut. It's slightly different to mm. me, in my opinion. So, you know, I, you, you, after pay, I would look at it as like a bank. Really, it's kind of, it's kind of both, though, right? They, they make a cut of what's being spent, but they also have the risk that it doesn't get repaid. So, as long as it all gets repaid, they're making a set percentage of the fee by definition. They're they're taking two, three, four percent from the retailer. If everyone pays it back, that's exactly what they do get. No, which no, is no, it's not exactly that, right? So, let's say the retail they're getting five percent from the retailer, but right. but for that, they have actually to borrow the money for which they may be paying three percent. So, they're basically making yeah. the difference only on it. Yeah, 
to, to some degree. They, right. they get they get to use the, the cash multiple times a year, though, right? So that it's is a different. True. It's so, an annual charge versus a, versus a per transaction fee. Sh- but I take your point. Yeah, but, but I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, okay, buy, sell, the hold. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna make you. Yeah. Uh, so I I would put it right now as a hold. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't sell it if <laughs> you know if I held it. The thing is, I don't hold it. But yeah, you know, yeah. I I've, I'm still not convinced. You're not rushing out to buy it, are you? I'm not rushing out to buy. So I I'll put it at a hold. Uh, yeah, fair enough. I uh, I'm the same, and I, I my view. I think I've probably said on the podcast before. I'm pretty sure Afterpay is not worth the current price. If it's successful in the US, in particular, it's probably worth a whole lot more, maybe three or four times the current price. If it if the US business ends up being unsuccessful, frankly, I think it's overpriced at the current price. I think it kind of to me it feels like zero or five seven years ago when the zero was at fifty bucks. It was one of those businesses that had a whole lot of hope into it based on what it yeah. might do in the US. It wasn't able to break through in the US in a big way, at least not yet. Yeah. Um, and the price kind of fell and then it's kind of profits grown back into the previous price about now. Um, and so you probably, you've broken even over five years, which is pretty decent. It's not, not a terrible result, but um, to some degree, that was the expectation that was built in that didn't didn't come to pass. Now, yeah. if Afterpay can make it come to pass, in a, in a different universe, Zero was successful in the US and is now worth $200 a share. Um, in, in a, you know, Zero had that issue. Afterpay may or may not be able to get to the same result. I think that what I'll add is that in the, in the Zero case, there was a there was a nimble competitor in QuickBooks there, which they had to defend. Whereas it's not clear to me who the competitor is for their, mm. them in the US. Maybe, you know. Afterpay, you mean? Yeah, for yeah. After, Afterpay. So maybe that's the advantage they have. But you're right. I mean, if some, you know, if somebody wants to compete, if PayPal, for example, wants to compete with them um, then it'll be hard that's the question right yeah real money advice from real people not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple m speaking of disruption speaking of competing speaking of digital money how's that for another segue I'm on fire. That, that's that's great. The new yeah. year, 2019 is going to be my year for segues, mate. I'm all over this. Like You're a winning rash. it. All over it like a fat kid on cake, mate. Um, uh, digital banking. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of digital banks that have sprung to life recently, uh, either either organically from other businesses or businesses that are starting up specifically to be digital banks. Uh, on one hand, I kind of feel like we've seen this story before. We've had the ING Directs that came to Australia. We had. We've had Bank from NAB. We have Dragon Direct. Um, there's, there's plenty of online banking has, of course, been a very, very big hit in Australia. We were one of the, we are tend to be one of the fastest technological adopters in the world, and we've certainly done that with internet banking. On one hand, what's new about online banking? Not much. On the other hand, there's a whole lot of new banks that are seeing some opportunity somewhere. Mm. Uh, so tell me, is, is this is this an echo of last time, full of sounding fury, signifying nothing, or is this genuinely a revolution? Should we? Should, should banks and bank shareholders fear the rise of digital banks, or is this just more of the same and, and business will go on as usual? I, I mean, it's a difficult one. I, you know, like so Vault, uh, Vault Bank got its license to be, you know, bec- become a deposit-taking institution. Right. And they also got the, uh, I believe, the $250,000, you know, the deposit guarantee of the of the federal government. So that's, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, now the question is, can they get deposits and, you know, and to get those deposits, you know, how much are they going to pay yeah, right. uh, in, in terms of interest, right? So, I mean... Becoming a deposit-taking institution gives you flex in terms of you know how you know your 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 lending capacity, funding right? sources, right? Your exactly. funding sources. Yep. So I mean that that's a it's a leg up for them. Yep. And uh, I, I mean it's hard because I think we mm. are in 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 a scenario where I think the um, you know the lending growth is probably going to be you know slow and steady, mm-hmm. right? Not not increasing. Yep. So if that's the you know it's going to be a very competitive environment. So I think it's going to be a competitive environment for everyone. 
Um, the one that I thought is interesting, and you know, and I don't think the license has been approved, is the one called WeBank, right. which is from, uh, which is I think majority owned by uh, Tencent. Okay, right. Now this coming from WeChat is that the same? Yeah, kind of business? yeah, WeBank, right, okay. WeChat, you know, so Tencent. Now that one I find interesting because you know it can be capitalized by a very big company, right? That's a right. mammoth company now. Right. And and there are other risks that come with that, you know. So there are you know, maybe some sovereign risks involved with you know letting um, if a, a, a big company with such cloud come and have open a bank. Right. So I, I think if someone came and wanted to disrupt it, and you know came with you know a, a, you know seated with capital, then it mm. could be very disruptive, and mm. it would be disruptive for our incumbents. Um, net result might be that's actually good for consumers, but um, yeah, we'll see. So I, I find the WeBank news interesting but i don't think they have the license yet mm. uh they filed a bunch of you know pat you know not patents but you know they registered trade names and things mm. like that mm. so um that i think is interesting and do you so so if you think about that what, what does this mean for our banks if anything what, what's your view on digital banking the kind of march of 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 disruption it's kind of on one hand it's easy to think gee the banks are old and stayed and yeah. not doing much and this new breed of disruption that's happening everywhere else in the world yeah banking's next on the other hand, as I said, I kind of feel like we've kind of seen this story a little bit before. I feel like banking need, uh, digital bank needs kind of a killer app to use the the, the phrase. I feel like uh, if Commonwealth Bank gives me on just to pick a bank gives me online banking and net banking and Apple Pay and Google Pay and I kind of don't need to change my account to a WeBank or to a Vault or to a, a somebody else who's coming out of the out of the blue. Unless they kind of give me a really, really good reason to. ING Direct couldn't do it. In fact, ING sold out to ANZ that now owns ING Direct in Australia. Uh, we've seen the other banks. It seems like disruption kind of hasn't really caught hold, partly to give the banks credit because they've responded really well to it. They've, they're amongst some of the technological leaders worldwide when it comes to banking. Is this another echo of a coulda, shoulda, woulda, or is this genuinely something they should be worried about? Well, I mean, I mean, again, I would not be worried about it. I mean, I, I think that the opportunity here is that, you know, you're, the operating cost for an online-only bank should be lower than a you know, brick-and-mortar bank, right? right, right. Now, you would argue that, you know, the same would have been true for, say, ING and so on. Um, but I think ING was a different beast in some sense, right? Because ING, I mean, is a big bank, is worldwide operated, um, has, you know, probably comes with a different culture and maybe a wee bank comes with a different culture and you know and if it, if they want to be really aggressive they could actually up significantly the the interest they're willing to pay on deposits and therefore right. grab deposits right so i i i, I think a, a big foray by uh, in in online banking from mm -hmm. a company like tencent which is an online leader in so many different things can actually change the game Okay. Whereas you know, because you know, that's right, the, okay. the, the things that they have done, for example, using WeChat is, in in China is is pretty amazing. So, um, you know, they've really created their own ecosystem inside WeChat. So, I think mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. I think I would not I I would treat an online entry by by WeBank as a very significant move. I, I don't know Volt uh, well enough. Uh, you know, it's a privately held company to have a comment, but I know that yeah. Tencent is a very innovative company. And, and and therefore their entry could mean something. So it's almost that that kind of tech heritage to some degree, the culture, the call it what you will, the way of working of that business, because it's so different to what we're used to from financial services that maybe it's kind of just going to bring something different to the table that maybe we can't foresee. But it's different from bank A trying to revolutionize bank B. Yeah. If you're a tech company trying to revolutionize Banking. payments and finance, yeah. it's a different it's a different, it's a different story. And, and it's and a very profitable tech company. Right, and one of Isn't the it? yeah, and it's one of the largest tech companies in the world. Just people just don't realize. It. <laughs> and 
question without notice, but you know the answer. If if I if one of our listeners said, "Hey, that ten cent thing sounds interesting," mm-hmm. how can you get access to ten cent from Australia? You can actually. You can buy an ETF uh, from exchange traded fund. Exchange traded fund from BetaShares, which okay. is called Asia, which holds. What is that called Asia? That's the ASIC code. That is, it's called Asia. It's okay. the Asia ETF and the ASIA. Co- okay. Yeah, and the code is also ASIA. <laughs> um, uh, funny enough, they had the code, I guess, available. Nice. That holds the fifty. Uh, Fifty uh, X, excluding Japan, largest tech companies in Asia, right. which are primarily domiciled in Asia, whose businesses in Asia, you can get exposure to ten cents. One so, of the largest holdings. So there. the fifty largest companies in Asia, X Japan and X Financials. Do I remember that correctly? Uh, it's, that? it's tech. X, yeah, okay. It's only tech. So right, it's, right, it's tech right. oh, okay, companies, okay. and and when, when the X, um, right. it's X, and it's, I think it's X Australia as well. It's basically yeah, yeah. it's basically the the Asia component um, minus Japan. Cool. Nice. Uh, and we would say that's probably a good exposure to have. That is, uh, I think it's a great exposure to have. Okay. You know, if you believe in the rise of Asia over the long term, then I and, think it's a great exposure. To and have. as part of a balanced portfolio, of course. A, of course, sure. yeah. I, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, like anything. Goes without saying. Yeah. <laughs> correct. Correct. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. And let's move on to one of our favorite parts of the Motley Fool Money podcast, and that is a dip deep, deep, deep into the Fool mailbag. I've already given the details, so I won't bore you with that again, though I may do it towards the end. Uh, Fools, as I said, we love hearing your comments, questions, feedback, and suggestions. And we got a heap over the last couple of weeks. And as I said, this is the first time we've been together for a couple of weeks. So we're going to work through the mailbag over the next two weeks, maybe even three, if we get some more good questions. Uh, please throw them at us. As always, if that's what you want to hear from us, that's what we want to talk about rather than making it up ourselves. As much as Doc loves talking about property and as much as I love bagging him about Apple, because that's just what we both like to do, um, we will, uh, we, we'd much rather actually getting your feedback and, and suggestions. All right, so here's the first one, Doc. Um, a question. Hi, guys. Love the show. I'll tell you what. They know how to, they know how to sweet talk us, don't they? <laughs> uh, just wondering if you have any insight on what has gone on with Retail Food Group. Oh, dear. This was one of the worst stocks, very, very worst stocks of 2018. Yeah. It was seen as a good investment not all that long ago. That was true. I was once recommending that stock to our members, unfortunately. And now it is down to 30 cents. Oh. I saw in the news that there could be a Chinese buyout on the horizon. Does that make the current rock bottom price attractive in your eyes? And Doc, because I get to ask the question, I'm going to ask you to answer it. I will. I, I won't leave you swinging completely. I will. I will offer a suggestion. But uh, your thoughts on on Retail Food Group? At, at well, it was thirty odd cents then. I don't imagine it's changed too much. I'm just going to stall for time while I type in the code, and I see the price is exactly still thirty cents. So there you go. Uh, tell us your thoughts on RFG. So, so number one thought is that you know buying something because there's speculation that somebody else is going to buy it, and therefore you're going to get a buyout price, mm-hmm. which is going to be higher than the current price. Uh, that's a gamble. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the odds are that you win or the odds are that you lose. And maybe they're 50-50, I don't know. Yeah. Um, with, with Retail Food Group, I think there's a real, I think there's, they have debt problems that they, they have to deal with. And Most specifically, debt covenant that if they breach, the banks can effectively foreclose on them. So it's partly whether they can afford to repay it is, is almost the secondary issue. Yeah. The first one is they've made some promises to the bank that basically say, hey, you can call our loans if we don't do these three or four things. Yeah. Right now, they can't do a couple of them. So unless the banks continue to be kind. Yeah. They have trouble. They actually hanging over the neck. Yeah, yep. and and yeah, so they, they have some earnings uh, that they need to meet, mm-hmm. and they're probably going to be negative in their earnings given their scenario with how they've been selling uh, um, their franchises. So no, I mean, it's you know, is it a turn? It's not yet a turnaround in my mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's 
kind of far from it. It's it's basically in the sick bay. Mm. Uh, I would call it. It's in the ICU. <laughs> <laughs> so. And uh, and normally, look. It's funny you say that. Use that analogy because Warren Buffett has talked about buying great businesses when they're on the operating table. Yeah. So to kind of keep our medical medical metaphors going, uh, I think what I'm hearing you say is it's not necessarily a Buffett quality uh, quality business. So this this is not a great business that's in the ICU. It's in probably an ordinary business that's in the ICU. An ordinary business in the ICU is yeah. is pretty risky, pretty yeah. dangerous. So I don't rule out somebody might buy it. You know, but uh, you know somebody might buy it really cheap. Yeah. Right. So. That's yeah, my take. Pl- plenty of speculation. That wouldn't be the first company who had buyout rumors and then went broke you know, two months later. Um, I, I, w- I can't disagree with you, Doc. I think it's one of those scenarios. Look, it made, it made a heap of money from selling franchises. And right now, no one wants to buy an RFG franchise because there are too many of them around the, around the country. Yeah. Um, and if you can't sell franchise and that's where a large chunk of your profit comes from, then you're kind of on a hiding to nothing. And that's the problem that RFG face. They look, they do look really, really cheap at 30 cents. I have to say the value hunter in me is looking at that going, mm. oh, what do you reckon? Mm. Um, as you say, there, mate, the, the chance this goes to zero effectively because of a, a bank a covenant issue, yep. uh, or actually just because they, they lose money in the banks, so they simply can't pay the loans back, which is possible. Um, every possibility it's, it gets put in administration. Now, I will say for what it's worth, that, that Chinese takeover or the, the, the proposed or the speculated Chinese takeover for only part of the business, which was the crust pizza business, um, that could actually be more than what the current market cap is, for example. And so mm. there are some real possibilities when it comes to some value creation there, mm. but this is entirely and completely speculation. So mm. the, yeah, there's absolutely a scenario into which this is worth a lot more than 30 cents. There's a scenario where it's worth zero. Yeah. And frankly, neither you nor I nor anyone else can really put proper odds on that. Um, this is one of those ones where I feel like if you're an investor and you want to play this game, you kind of have to play the odds across a large number of examples of this. So yeah. I'd never buy RFG and say, I'm buying it on the basis of speculation. If you want to and you think you're good enough at buying takeover arbitrage, then maybe, even then I'd probably say no still, but you want to do it over 10 or 15 or 20 examples yeah. and make this a core part of your portfolio, knowing you're going to lose on some and win on others. Um, that's a that's a pretty tough so do the sum of parts game. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The sum of parts game. Yeah. And you need to repeat that many times. <laughs> RFG's an avoid still? I'd say it's a void. All right. Modly full money. Let's move to the next one from Jason on Twitter again. Love it. Hey team, listening to the podcast, and I agree with your point about the ASX indices being far too weighted towards banks and miners. So I'll stop there very quickly and just say for new listeners, we hope there are a few. We know many, many people join us every week. Firstly, what we've said about uh, we love ETFs, mm-hmm. we love broad-based ETFs. Ordinarily, we'd be saying to most members, "Hey, if you don't want to pick stocks, buy a broad index, uh, you know, something that covers roughly the entire market, an ASX 200 or an S&P 500 index, and go with that." I'd love to give that advice. It's cheap; you get the market return. The problem is that banks and miners are about 45 odd, 50 depending on the on the week uh, percent of that index, and so you're really not buying a diversified broad index. You're buying mm-hmm. a, a concentrated exposure to banks to banks and miners. So we've said in the past, look, we really struggle with saying that people are just just buy the index in Australia because it does feel too concentrated. So Jason's saying he agrees with that. So we we, we always appreciate mm-hmm. people agreeing with us. Oh, um, awesome! <laughs> Jason's we, obviously a very smart yeah, man. Yeah, we, we love Jason. Probably very he, good looking too. Yeah, I would imagine he's great. Exactly. <laughs> but then he says, okay, so what are your thoughts on equal weight ETFs? rather than market cap weighted ETFs. And again, just to give you a, a heads up, market cap uh, weighted ETF is the standard ETF. It basically says, hey, if BHP is 10% of the value of the ASX uh, as a market, then it's going to be 10% of the ETF. And it's weighted that way. So if BHP shares go up a couple of percent, that that is you know, a higher weighting than something that's only worth 0.1 of 1% uh, of, of the market, in which case that you only get a very small component. An equal weighted ETF would say, right, 200 companies, each of those is half a percent of the index. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's BHP or the 200th smallest or the 200th largest company, mm-hmm. better put, um, then you know they will go up in equal components based on the share price rises of each company. So if I've explained that well, if I haven't, feel free to clarify, Doc. If I have, 
What are your thoughts on equal weighted indices? Yeah, I think equal weighted is, is interesting. I mean, a couple of things here. One, one, I mean, I would like to see actually some backtesting results to see actually how it looks mm. uh, without, without saying, you know, how it has, how an equal weighted ETF would have performed historically over the long term right. would give, give you a good sense of how they may perform in the future. Again, you know, past results are no indicator, you know, no guarantee of future results, but yeah. it's a good sense. Yeah. So I think that's, that's number one. Uh, I, I, I think the advantage of this approach would be that you'd get a more, you know, sector, sector balance by doing that mm -hmm. versus what you said. So I think there's some advantages there. So I like the idea as such. Um, that said, you know, there are many different types of ETFs available, right? So, you know, mm. they have, you know, they have these equal weights, you have sector weights, you've got actively managed. So as, as an ETF gets more complex, um, you know, you just have to, you know, cast a very clean eye and have a good look at it. So mm. without having a good look, uh, you know, I would, I don't know whether this is a good one to have, but, you know, the idea sounds interesting to me. Mm. And they, you know, I know that there are equal weights um, available overseas, um, so that's good if they're equal weights here, then, you know, gives people more options, at least in terms of diversification. Yeah, I'm, I'm stuck on this one, I have to say. I, it, it does help offset the issue of, of over-concentration and maybe all else being equal, that'd be an interesting way to go. I, I have to say, I don't... Part, part of the value of, of market cap weighted indices are that the biggest companies are the biggest because they tend to be the best and most profitable and a whole lot of other things like that. And so to some degree... If, your point, if the point of buying an, an index ETF is to give yourself the market return, which we think it should be, um, then once you start to choose any other strategy, you're kind of choosing an active strategy, even with a mm. passive instrument. So mm. it's kind of one of those scenarios where, I mean, there are more ETFs in, in the US now than there are stocks. Yeah. There are so many different versions of you can, you can have an, any, any sort of active strategy you want. And so ETFs become basically a fee collecting machine, which is exactly what we hate about the financial service industry is that um, everyone's trying to find a way to clip the ticket. The idea of a, of a very low fee broad-based index is to replace the idea of active stock picking or to supplement it if you want to have a, a broad base of your portfolio with a relatively market-matching instrument. Mm -hmm. Once you start to go outside that, you start to make bets and say, well, do I think a market-weighted index would be better or worse than a market cap one by you know this or that other reason? So I, I think that's – I would – it's an interesting idea. I love, the, I love the theory. I love chatting about it and kind of weighing up the mm -hmm. concept. I have to say I'd probably not be super keen on it. I don't know that – I want the 200th largest ASX company to have the same weight as the fourth largest or 10th largest ASX company in the sense that you're now betting actively that the small companies will either do better or as well as the larger companies. And that may well be true. And as you said, Doc, you want to see some backtesting. That's probably the answer. Although, again, that assumes that the past is going to look like the future or vice versa. Um, I, forced to choose... Maybe it's slightly better than a, mm. than a pure market cap weighted one in Australia. Mm. In the US, I'd say absolutely not. I'd absolutely go market cap weighted on the S&P 500. I think mm. that's the smartest thing because mm. you don't have the concentration issues. Here, if I was going to, you know, I'd, I'd probably actually hedge my bets and buy half of both is what I probably would do, <laughs> I think, because then you, mm. you're, not, you're not doing yourself out of a favor either way. And if, if that's the answer to ASX indexing, which is, hey, I want to buy a broad passive index. I'm not comfortable with the market weighted. Maybe a bit of both might help to offset some of those risks. Um, so maybe I might do that if I was so inclined, but I'm not a favor of in general, particularly in the US, but maybe, maybe it has a place here in so, Australia. But maybe the, maybe the solution to that is just buy the ASX 300 um, ETF, right? The Vanguard has an ASX 300, a little bit better mm. than the ASX 200. Slightly, slightly better. Yeah, the problem slightly is better. slightly. So the All Lords, for example, is 500 companies-ish, yeah. and it moves only incredibly, incredibly slightly differently to the ASX 200 because the top 10, the top 20 companies are about 66% of the index. Right. I was talking about another 100 companies. They're so small in comparison. It's probably something like, and I'll make this up, but something like 5 or 7% difference 
performance okay. because the market caps you're adding are so incredibly tiny because we, we Australian companies get so small so fast mm. it's very very hard for those small ones to make even, even a modicum of difference mix, mix it with other ETFs is the other solution right just mm. mix it with other ETFs or join one of our services and follow well. And, and buy stocks. <laughs> buy buy, buy exactly. stocks. Exactly. Yeah. A bit of shameless self-promotion there mm. as we as we get towards the end of the podcast. Modly full money. Doc, one last one we had from Power Pig on Twitter mm-hmm. at PowerPigDT. Uh, I assume DT is Power Pig's initials, although maybe his name's actually Power Pig and or her name is Power Pig and mm-hmm. DT is just something else. Um, Power Pig says, and the Motley Fool, love the podcast, guys. Excellent. Awesome. I bought Telstra shares about three to four years ago at 563. Oh, dear. I, 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 only, I only say that because I did too. Um, I can't see them ever going up again to those levels. Do I hold out or is it time to sell? Also, what are your thoughts on West Farmers now post the Coles demerger? Hold or sell? Now, I will say to some degree that kind of gives PowerPig's view away because they're not asking if we should buy. Mm. Um, so hold or sell are the only options that PowerPig wants to know about, and maybe because uh, he or she already owns mm. West Farmers, I would assume. Um, let's start with Telstra, mate. I, I'm loath to ask you the question mm. because uh, I love sometimes, sometimes so you get confused with Tesla, Telstra, Tesla. Uh, but uh, you, look, you're a noted Telstra bear, mm-hmm. but at the current price, can you see your way clear to us saying to PowerPig, hey, and we should say we don't give personal advice. Mm. This is general advice only. Um should our listeners be holding their Telstra shares or is it time to part ways? So I'll answer this in two in, in two parts. Okay. <laughs> Since the question is, should I hold or sell? I mean, it's already at the point where, you know, they don't think it's a buy. So, right? to, to be fair, Powerpig's already got, so they're not looking to add, add to, right. add more shares. Okay. Powerpig obviously already owns them. So do, 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 do they leave the shares in the portfolio or do they mm. get rid of them and use the money for something else? So uh, I could answer this, I'll answer this differently again. I'll say, uh, <laughs> just, just to be more nuanced, I think if you can find another company or a set of companies that you think are going to deliver higher returns than this one, then you should absolutely sell it, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, if you can find another company that's going to give you better returns or a couple of companies that are going to give you better returns, then why do you want to hold this? Right. Um, even though it may be market beating, right? Yep. So, yep. I mean, you know, so that's the thing. Uh, that's number one. Uh, if um, With the exception that you may have to pay tax and other things. So, there, there, are, there are certain reasons why you mightn't want to. No tax. In, if in the case of, in, in, no tax in this case, 563. Say, in the case of Telstra, there's a tax this loss. This is like a tax <laughs> loss. So, this, this, is, this is a perfect one, right? Yeah, totally. This is a perfect one. There's no tax issues involved, you know, you know, yep, yep. Um, if you think if you can find something that's going to grow better than this, <laughs> absolutely sell it, lock the tax, and and be done with it. That's yep. that's number one. Totally. Um, do I think I think the current prices look reasonable? Um, you know, I'd give it a decent odd. Does that, does that hurt to say that? No, it doesn't. Not hurt. About I mean, Come on. No, it doesn't. I mean, the thing is, like you know, at, at you know, around the three dollar mark, it seems like it's a cheap stock. Um, is it cheap enough? It probably will give market returns, is my guess, uh, at, at $3 at, you know, um, I think anything, you know, once it starts getting to yeah. sort of, you know, the 250 zone, I think is cheap. Mm. $3, I think, is, is okay. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I think my view is that I think it's it has got a smallish chance, maybe, you know, I'll not say smallish, I'll say maybe 40-50% odd chance of, you know, giving you a market matching to beating returns. Right. Is my is my, is my guess at, at this point. Right. Um, That's fair. Yeah. I, um, yeah, look, I, I, I mean, I own Telstra. Um, it's a buy for us sell at Share Advisor. I, I share your view, Doc, that at the current price in particular, I think what I got wrong when I bought at higher price and recommended at higher price, so we do get things wrong. I will say for what it's worth, we are beating the market overall, so we get some calls wrong. Uh, but overall, if we get enough right, we're beating the market, which we are at Share Advisor. Um, Telstra for me is a. It, it, the thesis was always the mobile business was strong, 
the landline business was weak, but the mobile business would well and truly offset the growth that would offset the decline in the landline business. Mm. And what I completely messed up was the timing and the size of those changes. So um, I still think that's going to be true, by the way. I still expect the mobile business to do really, really well. The problem was there was too much of the value of the then Telstra in that landline business that has evaporated. Mm. And so that's the mistake in the past. I would say to PowerPig, the price you paid, you should ignore. We mm. talk about anchoring all the time. It's very hard to do because you're sitting on some losses mm. and going, oh, this really sucks. The question is, if you cashed out today, would you buy in again? And at the current price, I do think that most of the bad news is hopefully priced in. I expect fully that 5G will be a boon for Telstra. I think it will continue to do well. It will continue to dominate the mobile space. And as long as it does that, um, I think it's going to be a good investment from the current price. I could well still be wrong, mm. uh, but that, that's my view on balance. I think I think the risk and reward is in Telstra's favor. Okay. Mate, I'm going to go to West Farmers then in Coles. Capalpi doesn't ask about Coles particularly, although I assume he or she owns some Coles because mm. of the demerger. So uh, let's, let's, let's look at West Farmers and Coles. West Farmers, of course, famously owned Coles, and people see West Farmers as a Coles kind of, uh, you know, interchangeably. West Farmers has always though, been an investment conglomerate, not a retailer. And so I wasn't surprised to see it demerge the Coles business onto the market. Um, it's going to basically put its money where the best opportunities are. It decided that Coles wasn't it. And so it was going to give those coal shares to its shareholders and then let them make the decision. Uh, West Farmers, of course, though, still owns Bunnings, Kmart, Target, uh, some coal business, some uh, in- insurance chemicals business. Big, big conglomerate at West Farmers. Your thoughts on West Farmers and or coals? I actually don't have much thoughts on West Farmers or Coles. Those are two companies that I don't actually follow that closely. And, you know, it's not even in the tech sector. So it's mm. something that I, I, I you know, it's too big for me. Uh, for my taste, and also not in the tech space. If it was big mm. in tech, I would follow it. So right. I really don't have a view. I, I mean, I have a view on Coles. I mean, it's very hard to grow that business, right? Because, because I mean, you know, we've got Coles, we've got Woolies, we've got Aldi. I mean, how much mm-hmm. can you grow? Uh, you know, you can only grow by population, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just yeah. really hard. So, yeah. so you need to you need to be value conscious. You know, the price you pay at certain price is probably a good buy. I just don't know what that price is. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I, I think uh, I, I think West Farmers is. I, I think you're right, actually, Doc. So we've got both of them as a buy currently at Share Advisor, where we've had West Farmers already on the scorecard before that. Uh, also had a couple of other services or one other service. Um, for me, I'm actually, I'm actually, it's there's still buyers as a standard um, recommendation, but I am looking forward to this current earnings season to see what the numbers are separately. Mm. I think that'll tell us a lot more about the two businesses. Um, I'm probably keener on West Farmers than Coles for growth probably keener on coals than West Farmers when it comes to yield. And so, again, depending on what the individual investor is looking for, I like the West Farmers culture. They've traditionally done a very good job of recycling capital. Um, I think they'll continue to do that. And frankly, coals was very capital heavy. West Farmers Sands Coals is actually a much lighter capital business. Not exactly a software business, but uh, much less capital per dollar of profit. So there should be a positive there for the company. Um, we'll see whether that comes true. So this earnings season, for me, if you held the shares, and again, we can't give personal advice, I wouldn't be selling them until I saw the, the results of this earnings season and then working out kind of what comes from that. Modly for money. Mate, uh, one, last, one last piece of feedback from members, then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a response to one of our previous podcasts. I know you don't like politics, mate, but I'm going to drag you back into the fray or at least mention it. You don't have to. You can, you can say mum if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a question uh, or a comment, uh, a bit of both, from, from the podcast. And, and it says somewhat uh, rhetorically mm-hmm. uh, or maybe, maybe pointedly, free trade is best. Isn't this only if all countries accept this and trade freely? This not only encompasses tariffs, but export subsidies, e.g. the <laughs> EU. Mm. Uh, now, we made the point in previous podcasts, or maybe I made the point, mm. I don't, I'm not going to drag you into mm. it, uh, that we know economically that, that tariffs, uh, subsidies, quotas, mm. all those kind of protectionist method, measures actually retard growth, mm. and the removal of those increases growth. That's been the... Uh, 
centuries and centuries, I want to say four centuries probably, mm. of, of history suggests that when, ta- when trade barriers are lowered, mm. then trade, international trade flourishes, and when international trade flourishes, living standards improve and increase. Mm. So I think I, 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 accept, the, I accept the comma comment that, mm. that's being mm. made. Um, isn't it only if all countries accept it? Well, yeah, kind of it is. Um, but we know that even lowering, relative lowering mm. of barriers, um, every, every, well, not every single one, I, I don't think we can be that broad and that definitive, but generally speaking, whenever a trade barrier is lowered, even if only slightly, even if only in some areas, some categories, international trade increases, improves, standards of improve. Mm. The reverse is also true. As barriers go up, mm. it retards in growth of the global economy. And I think you can say, well, I'm not lowering unless you do, or you've got barriers, mm. I haven't got barriers. And I think we shouldn't be patsies, again, country by country, region by region. You can say, well, I'm not lowering it till they do, and that's all fine. But to some degree, all of the global um, free trade networks, whether it's NAFTA, whether it's uh, the Australian free trade one, whether it's the new, uh, what's the one now, the one excluding the US? Is it I think, the. I think we have one with Japan as well, right? Yeah, yeah, one yeah we've got one with Japan. Japan. We've got, then there's, uh, a, there's the Pacific, whatever something it's called. That's uh, right. The, yeah. yeah. So that one excluding the US now. Yeah. The countries are voluntarily coming into these things because they know these things work, right? Yeah. And so our point is not. To say, well, someone's a winner, someone's a loser. And again, we're not trying to pay politics. We're trying to look at policies and say, generally speaking, freer trade, if we want to call mm. it that, um, lower barriers are better than higher barriers. And the more we can have those come down, the better. If they go back up, even if it's justified, even if on a moral, ethical mm. level, you say, well, they're charging me, so I'm going to charge them. It's actually negative for everybody. And so it's one of those things where sometimes you might not get a win-lose or a lose-win, um, but a win-win is just if any barriers come down, then everyone is better off. And I think as, a, as an economic, I don't think you find any serious economist who would disagree with that theory. I have nothing. I'm, I just love that comment. I'm going to just, now, instead of saying free trade, I'm just going to say free air trade. There you go. And, 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 welcome, and, and then, then we win, right? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I have nothing else to add. I think that's, that's you know, it's a good point. Uh, yeah, I, and I understand the question's point. Yeah. I, think, I think it's a fair... It's a fair point. It's a fair point. I, I just would say, let's not lose the forest for the trees, right? Yeah. We could say, well, I'm not doing it unless you do, and then we're all poorer yeah. for it. Um, sometimes being right is expensive. Sometimes being magnanimous, if I can use that word, is actually better off. And maybe sometimes just saying, well, it's imperfect, but as our boss would say, perfect mm. is the enemy of good. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I think we can embrace that and that's probably a better economic outcome. Absolutely. Mate, that wraps us up. Our very first podcast together for 2019. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed it. And as I've said previously, if you want to get in touch with us, email us at info at fool.com.au or hit us up on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU or look up Scott Phillips or Anirban Mahanti and we will happily chat with you, answer your questions and hopefully have a one or two of them in the podcast. And before we go, don't forget you can subscribe and you should to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a big five-star rating. Tell your friends, leave us a review if you don't mind. If you're enjoying it, then there's a fair chance that other people will too. And that's the best way for them to find out about this free, hopefully a bit of fun, Motley Fool Money podcast. And don't forget you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox. Just go to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Potly Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.